Hello, welcome to Let's Talk Sim, brought to you by Anaxel. On this podcast, we interview innovators in the field of simulation to discuss new methodologies, the current and future state of the field, learning resources, and inspiring stories. Anaxel is dedicated to advancing the science of healthcare simulation, and this podcast is an extension of our passion for simulation. I'm your host, Jennifer Alderman, Associate Professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Nursing and Co-Chair of the Anaxel Membership Committee. Let's get started. So welcome everyone to Let's Talk Sim Episode 2. Today we have two distinguished guests to our podcast. We have Tracy Chesney and we have Marion Luck Carr Flood. And these two experts in virtual reality are going to share their experience with us. Tracy, please do introduce yourself a bit. Thank you. I've been a nurse for close to three decades uh, and in simulation for 21 of them and uh, nursing education for 16 of that. In 2018, I found myself in the position that all simulation coordinators find themselves in where that needs assessment was showing we were outgrowing our space. And I was uh, meeting with my mentors to uh, refine my technique to ask for a few million dollars to expand the sim room. And uh, that was at Anaskal. And that year there were two vendors there with headset-based technology that could be used in nursing education. And when I put the headset on, it changed my life in five minutes flat. And it changed my proposal to the uh, school board. And in, uh, by October of 2018, I put the first virtual reality sim lab together for nursing education in Arizona. And it's been history ever since. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, we're going to go a little deeper into some of that work in just a moment. But now I would love to hear from Marion to introduce herself. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Mary Luckhart-Flood. I'm uh, from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I'm a, an associate professor at Queen University, and I've been doing simulations since 2005. And it was actually Kim Layton who came and did my training when we took the simulators out of the box. So it's really interesting how things have uh, grown over the years. And so most of my experience initially was with mannequins and standardized patients. And it was probably three years before the pandemic, three or four years before the pandemic that I became interested in virtual simulation. And the reason for that was we were finding many of our students were coming to the simulation lab and they weren't prepared. They weren't doing the assigned readings and you know, assigned activities prior to coming to the lab. And we had the idea that we would create some virtual simulations that the students could do on their own before coming to the lab to better prepare. And it was really fortunate that we did that. So we, we did find that students, because they don't like to read the new generation, they're, they, they're always online, they like visuals and that sort of thing. And so we found these short virtual simulation games were very engaging for them. and. What it also did was it pointed out to them where they didn't know information and that they then they would go back and do the readings because they they recognize that they weren't prepared. 
And, and then after that, we decided, well, maybe we can replace some of our full length simulations in the lab with virtual because they're more accessible. And uh, so we started making longer virtual simulation games. And so the games that I create are not uh, headset based, they are screen based, computer based um, simulations that we record with a GoPro camera. And we record them from the perspective of the nurse, which uh, puts the student in the shoes of the nurse and immerses them in, in the simulation. And it was very fortuitous because then the pandemic hit. And then when um, we needed some to go online, we had a, a bank or repository of yeah. simulations at CanSim um, that we could um, use for nurse educators across the country and, and across North America to implement. And we haven't stopped since. The demand for these virtual simulation games during the pandemic, um, we've had government funding to make games specific to COVID and, and all kinds of things. And so I don't see them going anywhere. And, and I, as I say, as Tracy had said, when we were talking before, you really need to look at the, the learning outcomes that you're trying to achieve when you decide which tool to use, whether it's the computer-based or the headset-based or using a mannequin. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I agree. Yes. Mm -hmm. Anything to add there, Tracy? Go right ahead. I, I think, you know, one of the, the most amazing thing I've found by being able to put students into a virtual experience is it does, it pits them against themselves. And so instead of that uh, feeling like they needed to know everything, now it really helps them understand, you're right, what they don't know and how to go to the resources to now understand it better, having that, that safe experience. But more importantly, I think it's amazing that we can let them make a mistake safely and then repeat that experience and in 30 minutes flat, learn from their mistake that can, can, can eventually transition into their practice. Mm -hmm. And that, that part's just, there's nothing we can do in nursing education that's that fast. So it sounds like from listening to the both of you, would you say that the one of the main impetus for this movement to virtual virtual reality simulation has been the learner, like the, the, the differences in the learner of today, the nursing student of today um, that who needs that more engaging um, kind of hook, you know, to get them into the scenario. And I love what you're saying about they really don't know what they don't know. So then they're able to identify kind of their own gaps. Um, Marion, comment on that? Um. I think that was our initial impetus to start mm -hmm. using virtual simulation mm -hmm. because we were finding them unprepared mm -hmm. and we, we thought that a game would be more engaging for them. But I don't think that is the, the impetus for the continued use. Mm -hmm. I think we found by creating our own games, we found it was really cost effective to be able to create a game and then use it multiple, multiple times for, for, for learners. And because the games are being shared worldwide, I mean, you, if you create a game for $1,000 or $90,000, but millions of people are using it, you can't get more cost-effective than that. And so I think because our class sizes are um, increasing, because of COVID, we've been asked to increase our class sizes again. And we don't have the capacity in terms of clinical sites, lab space to do things 
the way we used to. And so being able to offer some of our education online um, is really one of the impetuses impetuses is that <laughs> uh for 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 using them and, and the the other thing that i think tracy mentioned was safety mm-hmm. and it's not just the patient's safety i think psychologically psychological safety is also a factor because um when we have students in a lab we typically have groups of 10 or 12 doing a simulation. And so four, maybe four students are interacting with the mannequin at once or with the standardized patient. And what you find is the confident students speak up and make the decisions and the less confident students stand back and just follow along. But when you put them in an immersive experience like a screen-based virtual simulation or a headset-based virtual simulation, mm-hmm they are the decision maker. There's no one else uh, there and they are, um, they're in the moment they're making the decisions. And I think their learning is, is perhaps accelerated by, by having to do that. Tracy? Agreed. Um, it takes away that, that performance of being in front of your, your peers and, and that concern about making a mistake in front of everybody or the instructor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay to make a mistake inside of a computer-based or, or a headset-based um, scenario, um, as long as they're learning from that. I love the fact that, um, that you commented on the resources, that this is something that really, I think, is the biggest driver, is that our, our learners can go through the exact same case, and it, it, there's no variation. There's no change in tone of voice. There's no change in the way the avatar is going to respond. It is the same every single time. And we know that, you know, when we do uh, hands-on sim, after about our fourth round on that, uh, sometimes our response changes or or the tone changes or, you know, um, and we can get kind of tired, but it's not that way in virtual reality. The other thing is I was able to build a 10 station virtual reality um, lab in a 440 square foot space, which is the traditional size of the debrief, the room and the control room of one sim lab. And so I put 10 in there. So exponentially I increased the amount of simulation space um, that, that has traditionally been around. And that was back when the technology was four years ago, four years old. Um, When I built the second one, I was able to double the size of that lab and put 22 stations in there because the the learner is can work and maneuver in a six foot by six foot space. Now, granted, there's, you know, like all sim, there still has to be that um, element of, uh, you know, unrealism you know when they when they let go of the stethoscope and it's still hanging in midair yeah that's not going to happen in the real world so you know gravity will still (laughs) ensue but but um you know so you still help them with that the other side that we've seen is being able to really measure their clinical decision making and their clinical judgment to a level that we haven't seen before um with um, our traditional hands-on sim, um, because they really are thinking through that next step. 
it didn't cost us in, in any additional supplies to repeat this experience. They could go through it. If we set aside an hour, which is the typical time of one sim, you know, we could have a student go through the same sim three times and then go through the debrief as a group. And interestingly enough, while they all tended the exact same case, they all had very different thoughts on how they were approaching it. So it's really elevated that level of, of debriefing um, into a realm that, that really captures the clinical judgment that we hadn't seen before. How have you seen outcomes evaluated? So you were saying, what kind of metrics basically, you know, with the VR, are you able to collect or what, what data are you able to collect from those types of simulations? Uh, Tracy? So that's been, that's been a little bit of the hairy part because mm -hmm. it's still uh, very much the early adopter part. Sure. Um, and a majority um, of the tools that are out there were designed for your traditional hands-on sim. We, we chose in our program to continue using the PEARLS method, whether it was um, downstairs in hands-on sim or uh, in the virtual immersive reality lab. Um, because we found that to be an adaptable method to debrief. Uh, but we also had to um, learn how to evolve a little bit more. And we, we looked for measurement tools. Mm -hmm. So the metrics that we primarily looked for um, were, one, did they meet the objective of the scenario? Mm -hmm. um, and, and we would get that feedback from the learner at the end of, of the simulation day. Um, but then we also worked with the didactic to um, faculty to see if we were making shifts in the, um, the areas that were traditionally uh, challenged in the classroom. So were we seeing the connections, the ahas coming together? And, and we all know that regardless of what type of simulation format they were using, um, when they come back in, when they were able to be in clinicals, and they'd be like, oh my gosh, I saw, and it was in, the, you know, the, the computer-based, or it was in the headset-based, or it was in a hands-on, and I actually saw it in the real world. The other thing is that, you know, we know that nursing students, um, right, well, the pandemic put going to clinicals at, at a big challenge, mm -hmm. but even before then, the role of where the nursing student was at um, had evolved from where it was my many decades ago, where I actually went to clinicals and took care of a patient and, and, and reported off to my clinical instructor and reported off to the nurse. Um, and, and I was responsible for all those you know, the decisions. I mean, obviously with a lot of guidance, but um, as opposed to following uh, uh, or, or being put against the wall when the patient, you know, is going south. And I think one of the things I've seen with computer-based and headset-based virtual reality is we're giving that student that chance to be in the shoe of the nurse again. They're able to be in that role again um, and, and still have that safety of a clinical instructor that can guide them through, you know, the formative elements of, of their learning experience afterwards. On the good part, it's an avatar, mm -hmm. you know, which is okay. It killed the avatar. 
we just hit restart. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Marion, any comment on assessment or evaluating outcomes, metrics? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think one of the, the points that Tracy was actually making uh -huh. is that um, using virtual simulation is, a, is an authentic method of assessment um, versus having students write a multiple choice exam where they can think and, 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 and answer a knowledge question. But when you put them in the, the shoes of the nurse, now they're actually applying the knowledge and they're um, experiencing the distractions and the, the timelines that the nurse experiences where they have to make a decision in the moment. Um, when you're writing an exam, if you don't, if you don't get the answer, you can, you can finish the whole exam and then go back and do try again at, at the questions. But in real life, you, you can't do that. You have to decide in the moment. So I think it's a really, whether you're using it for formative or summative assessment, these types of simulations are really authentic assessments where, that are really preparing students for the realities of, of uh, clinical practice. And they always remind us of uh, situations in clinical that they saw in their, their virtual simulations. And mm -hmm. that, is, that is great because then they, they, they can make the, the leap from the simulation to, to reality. Mm -hmm. um, and we typically don't um, use simulation of any type at our school for summative assessment. But we are beginning to dabble in, um, we're, we're actually going to create some virtual OSCEs that are going to be exact, well, not exactly, but based on our virtual simulation game design. And uh, it'll be interesting, then we will be able to, to collect metrics. Um, mm -hmm. In our games, the students can go back and review all the questions and which ones they got right and incorrect, but we don't collect that information. It's, it's for their learning purposes, but with the VOSCI, we would actually um, collect that information and whether we decide to use it as, as a, a score or not, it would be um, a valuable uh, a metric to collect. Mm -hmm. And the, the other metric that we do collect is uh, all of our simulations have an assessment rubric, pre and post that learners complete. And these are based directly on the learning outcomes that we create before we even create the games. And so that is even before they get immersed in the experience, they see what the learning outcomes are and that may or may not, um, they may choose to do some preparation when they see what those learning outcomes are because um, <laughs> They may think it's about um, a clinical situation or a clinical condition, but the learning outcomes are all focused on communication. So mm -hmm. um, it, it, it makes them think, oh, maybe I need to look at my communication skills first or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then when they do the rubric afterwards, that's something they can bring to the debriefing. They can see if they've improved or not, and uh, they can share that information with, with their instructor. Mm -hmm. So those are the tools that we like to use. Uh -huh. um, I love what you said about the students really making the linkages between the, what they saw in their virtual uh, simulation to their actual clinical experiences. It's, it's so rewarding for educators to see those light bulbs going off. So um, I certainly appreciate what you were saying there. Uh, so final topic here for our discussion today. And 
is around faculty development. So what would you recommend uh, for faculty development? If, like if we were gonna start up some, uh, you know, a VR a simulation program, or what types of, what are, what are your do's and don'ts or your tips and tricks and things that you two have learned over your vast experience um, as far as faculty development or how do you begin that kind of onboarding piece? I'll start with Marion. So I, th I think it's really important to remember that virtual simulations still need to be delivered according to the health sim healthcare simulation standards of best mm -hmm. practice. So these are generic, they're applicable to any type of simulation modality. So you still need a pre-brief or preparation, you need a debrief. And so we have to have faculty that are knowledgeable about how to deliver these components. And this was what was lacking during the initial stages of COVID. Clinical instructors were being asked to facilitate debriefings who hadn't been trained. And, and so this is not good practice. And so it's really important, um, you know, you spend money on equipment, you spend money on um, programs, you need to spend money on faculty development because otherwise the learning is, is not going to be as good. The, the facilitator doesn't know how to debrief, the students have questions, um, they, they, they can't clarify. And so um, I think at least they need to know about pre-briefing and debriefing because they're not really facilitating during the simulation as they would in a, a live simulation. And it, it's, there, there are different places that they can get this training. So Anaxel has um, the ISEP program mm -hmm. that has uh, certain modules that cover these uh, topics. Um, and in Canada, we have the CASN uh, simulation nurse educator certification program, which I happen to teach in. Um, and then at CanSim, we also have some um, faculty development workshops and some, some of it includes um, debriefing and that sort of thing. So if they look around, there are lots of opportunities. It's really getting the support from uh, their institutions to, to pay for this faculty development for their, their facilitators. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're better prepared now than we were initially. And, but uh, I, I would uh, strongly suggest that it, it's just as important as buying the equipment to deliver these simulations. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, Tracy, go ahead. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Um, I found that when, when we got started, um, and the product that we used allowed the screen-based, the com you know, computer-based, as well as a headset-based. And I found that the first thing was get the faculty in the headset. But I didn't put them in the headset to go play, you know, a medical case. I put them in the headset off into like the Zen room of, you know, some woodland retreat or, you know, go find a spaceship you want to be on or whatever and just get used to the equipment and that feeling of being inside a virtual environment. And then moved into how do we, um, how do we evolve our cases? And so we always did a, like if we were doing a, a STEMI downstairs on a hands-on sim, we did an in the virtual world so that all of our prep work and all of the pre-work still tied to the, regardless of the format that sim was happening in. But then we were able to have those discussions on how this case was different than the other case that you did. 
depending on where they were in their rotations. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other side was um, the role of the faculty did shift. Um, it became more of understanding a little bit more on how to troubleshoot some technology. You know, if the headset blinks, what, what do you do with the student? If the student's feeling nauseated, what do you do with them? Um, how to keep students from bumping into each other. Um, and, and then you got the other side is that, you know, in the headset, they, they don't have that, uh, you know, the technology of today's, you know, they can double tap and they can see the real world again, but the initial headsets didn't offer that. So we had to have find ways to let the student know, Hey, I'm, I'm by you. And if you feel my hand on your shoulder, I'm standing right here. And, um, and keeping very cognizant of, what they were saying, because we found students start talking out loud a little bit more, not to talk to each other, but because they were talking through what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And the first time I heard a student go, oh my gosh, the decision I just made just killed my patient. He was seven minutes into this scenario. And you know, our instant response was, are you okay? And he's like, oh no, I'm just gonna watch this play out. And he recognized what had happened. He played it out. We said, you need to take a break? Nope. You went right back in, made the appropriate decision. And that that was the big aha for us as faculty is where do we have those kind of, of you know, step away from the student, let them have their experience, but still ensure their psychological safety um, in, in finding that balance. So it's changed the role of what a facilitator does when they're in a headset lab um, in the sense of, what they're focused on, but it doesn't change the pre-brief and the debrief. That, that skill set, hands down. They here's the objective. Here's you know, do, do we all are we all on the football field before we all like head into the headset, and and then go through the experience and then debrief it appropriately. Um, thank you, thank you for those valuable um, tips and uh, comments around faculty development. So in closing today, we'd love to hear from each of you. What does the future of VR simulation look like in nursing education? Like it's sky's the limit, long-term, beyond the horizon kind of visionary thinking. What, what, what's, in, what's in your minds about that? Marion? So I don't know that we can predict because it's all dependent on the t- technology that, sure. uh, that is developed, but... Mm-hmm it's not going away and um, it, it's, it's going to continue to evolve and we will adopt anything that we feel is um, going to be appropriate to deliver the, the learning outcomes that we want. Um, and yeah, it'll be really interesting because there's, there's so many, you know, we've got the augmented reality too and, and, and virtual reality and, holograms and so many different things and I think it's up to early adopters or innovators to try them and to see if they're scalable to to nursing education and is it is it is it valuable is it worth you know scaling up to a class of 200 students or not Um, and that it's not just for fun Um, but we we're finding that there are you know, there is value in, in the ones we're using now, the, the computer-based and the headset-based, we are finding value in them. 
that maybe we didn't anticipate. And so I don't know that we can anticipate what's what's coming next. Um, but it'll be exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tracy. I think in looking at the greater needs assessment of nursing education in general, and mm -hmm. looking at the challenges that have been plaguing us for decades, the challenges of having enough faculty, sure. Uh, the challenges of having faculty who are expected to know everything in a course. Um, I think VR is going to open up the way we educate, not just in simulation and, and clinical experiences, but literally the way we educate in healthcare. Imagine being able to be a student and have that chance to have the experts neuro professor visit your class and change that role of the educator to literally facilitating other experts coming in so that the, the instructor becomes the expert in their area, but not the expert in all areas. And imagine being able to allow students that chance to be able to, to really immerse themselves into that content. There's things you can do in the virtual world you can't do in the real world. I mean, to be able to, to take the human heart and be able to slice it and overlay like tests over it. I mean, if I did that in a classroom, they'd be wondering who I murdered down the hallway for that, you know, beating heart. But I could do that in the in the 3D world. I could do that virtually. And I think it's just going to change the, the whole way we can view education. So the opportunities are as endless as the dreams of the innovators that are coming and the designers of the technology for the future. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. It is an exciting time for sure in nursing education and simulation education. Thank you for listening today to Let's Talk Sim. Please go to our website, anaxel.org, to learn more about Anaxel how to get involved in simulation and gain access to Anaxel's member offerings. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Let's Talk Sim so you don't miss a second of the latest developments in simulation. See you next time.